up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast, the official podcast for MetalNexus.net, where you can get all your news, music reviews, and so much more. Head over to MetalNexus.net and stay up to date on everything. And staying up to date is my co-host, Daniel Terry. How are you doing? I'm totally staying up to date. Currently, I'm importing my iTunes library into a different music playing app. <sighs> so you're using Zoom? I'm using Music B. Uh, I don't know what that is. It's a free thing. That's what I liked about it the most is that it was a free thing. And uh, it's going along pretty good, except for I've got like 14,000 album cover artworks to search out on Google, which it kind of does for me. But every now and again, it'll be weird. Like, I'm trying to get an Atreyu album cover, and it keeps throwing a Game of Thrones picture on it. And I'm like, that's that's cool, but that's not the, that's not the cover artwork. So iTunes isn't free? Uh, iTunes is free, but iTunes is like I've searched all these albums like automatic. You know how it has the automatically download cover artwork button. That shit tells me that yeah. like none of the albums that I have selected have available cover art, and I'm like, well, fuck you, Apple. <sighs> you know you can manually put it in, right? Yeah, I mean, we could really go back to the old days where I used to actually take my fucking liner notes and scan them into the computer. And you have to resize the image. We're talking, that's some Stone Age shit right there. But Anyway, uh, this episode's guest, uh, actually kind of speaking to uh, to kind of old uh, older bands, uh, is Sal from A Pale Horse Named Death. Uh, but you may remember him uh, for his time in Life of Agony or even Typo Negative. Correct. I gotta say, um, sometimes, like, you know, this, this interview came right after I did the one with Michael Beinhorn, which uh, will be coming out soon enough. I only expected it to take about a half hour with Michael, but, you know, sometimes you just get to talking to someone who's so prolific that <laughs> it goes longer than you anticipated. And uh, I basically double-booked myself, and I, as soon as I got done with the one with Michael, I immediately went into the one with Sal, and I had nothing written down. I had nothing prepared. <laughs> this is totally an off-the-cuff interview. And thankfully, Sal uh, did a lot of the heavy lifting. Like, you know, he, he kind of ran with the first question I had kind of asked him, and really opened up a lot of interesting uh, avenues to discuss. Um, and so, I mean, it was kind of nice. It's always nice when you have someone who actually can kind of take the reins of the conversation and just kind of go. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have those weird pregnant pauses where it's like they're waiting for you to come up with some amazing ball-busting question and you're just sitting there like, hey, can we just talk? <laughs> just me and you, just talk. I definitely think there's there's a lot of rawness and honesty in this in this interview. Uh, I don't even call it an interview; it's just a conversation. Yep. And this is one of those that, like, you know, these are the kind of conversations I wish I could have all the time uh, with everybody, and that's not always possible. But when they happen, you just kind of walk away going, like, "Wow, that that was something." Yeah, it was fun. I especially liked, um, not to beat a dead horse, but I liked your Static X conversation. Um, he has a pretty interesting perspective on it, and uh, a much more, uh, I would say, it's a lot less knee-jerk. Right. It was like, a, huh, I really thought about that. Let's think about that and talk about it for a minute. You know? I thought it was cool. The other thing, too, and something I've kind of, Dan and I have talked about a little bit, and some people who have kind of reached out and asked about some of the interviews we've done and some of the headlines that have been made, I don't think at the time we had really talked about the Scott Mellinger episode uh, yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, then sandwiched in between Static X's uh, tour manager uh, making a big long post that a bunch of sites picked up and then recredited us back to the original story. Woohoo! Um, but all that aside, I th the thing that kind of gets a little hard, I think, with, with having a podcast, especially when you're talking about something that's uh, very on the in the moment 
um, like the news of Static X, that tour getting announced, that happened. Basically, I think the day we did the Frankie episode, and then I did these two interviews with Michael and, and Sal the next day. So while right. we are weeks removed from the initial news, we were right in the midst of everything uh, when that happens. And that's, and that's kind of tough, you know, trying to get these interviews out as quickly as we possibly can without being dated or seeming like, you know, we're just really beating a dead horse. And it becomes one of those things where, you know, in thinking about Static X and how what they're doing, we've not really seen a band do this. I mean, honestly, the only band I could really think of that, that's kind of done this due to a death would be ACDC. But, you know, they went on and, and had another singer relatively soon afterward and then kept going. Um Right, I mean, that was just a straight-up singer change, though. That's not exactly what we're looking at here. Right, and kind of like I, you know, I was saying with, with the situation revolving around the Asley Dying thing, where we've not really seen a situation like this pan out, so everything that happens is kind of new and, and kind of taking it all in. Same thing with the Static X thing, you know. Like I kind of say in the interview, we, we've not seen this, and Typo Negative, honestly, is one of the only bands I could really think of where you have such an iconic frontman that it's like, okay, and he is the voice, he, he writes a lot of the music and, and so on and so forth, that basically, other than, hey, the rest of Typo goes out and does like a, we're going to celebrate Bloody Kisses or whatever, it's like, I, I can't really think of another band that's on that kind of iconic level with the frontman, the voice, the everything, to where, I mean, Ministry, maybe? Is that the only one really left at this point? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't... I wouldn't uh, go see that uh, with with Ministry, but uh, and I'm probably not going to go see it with Static X either. And ironically, Tony's in both those bands. Yeah, I know, right? But I think the weird part of it is, is that uh, it's the secrecy. Number one, that's weird about it. Ignoring all the other stuff we've talked about about whether it's a good idea or whether it's actually respectful to Wayne's memory or any of that stuff. You know, you've got a fucking guy in a helmet on stage basically pretending to be Wayne Static and doing his best Wayne Static impression. That's not really the same thing as getting a new singer, dude. Like, it's just, it's very on the nose. And it's not like any of us are, like, going to come away from that and feel like we got the full Static Act experience. Maybe I'm wrong. But, uh, you know, it could be a great show. It could be really entertaining. But it's just like going and seeing the Australian Pink Floyd, you know? Yeah, I mean, you're listening to it. You're like, yeah, it sounds like Pink Floyd, but it's not. You paid tickets. You paid for a ticket to see the Australian Pink Floyd. It's not the same thing, and I don't see it translating as such. For instance, if you had a band like uh, Norma Jean, who singer famously left, and then they got a new singer went on, and the sound changed, but the band was still the same band. At least it was back then. So there was a certain legitimacy to, okay, we've changed singers and we're going in this new direction to complement that singer or whatever. Right. This is just like a straight, like, we have to make it as much like Wayne Static's, Static X as we can without having Wayne. <laughs> right. It's a challenge. I wouldn't want to do that. Right. And I think that was kind of the thing that was interesting, like I said, and, and like I was just saying in the, a couple minutes ago, with the fact that I had nothing prepared and the interview just kind of went where it went, that's kind of why, like, you know, I was kind of looking at something and, and thinking about that, like, just, you know, typo, because I wanted to talk a little bit about typo negative, because <laughs> I wanted to find the, the gap or the bridge where I could talk about the 25th anniversary vinyl reissue, because, you know, oh, yeah. 
it was pretty cool and it was a big record store day thing and a lot of people were excited about it so you know it was just kind of cool to bring up such an iconic record and talk a little bit about it but i was trying to find a way to get there and then somehow my mind just kind of was like you know has any i wonder has anyone actually brought up the idea of like hey if you get you guys should do a typo reunion memorial show because <laughs> it just it, and then yeah. when i thought about it it just seemed asinine like why the fuck would you do that right i mean it's one thing if everybody's still alive right and you guys want to get together and do a, a reunion show yeah that's a pretty popular money maker these days yeah it's not a bad deal but you know again to have a memorial show is kind of like something you do right after someone dies right not years later, you know, you don't, it's not like a high school reunion. You don't get together every 10 years to fucking celebrate or, or memorialize the fact that somebody died in a band and the band no longer continues like it. I mean, I, I, you, here's the thing, man, you could do whatever you want to do, but is it a good idea? I, I don't think so. Not, not past the initial shock of somebody passing. Yeah. No, no, no. It was, uh. It's really interesting, and then kind of even some of the Life of Agony stuff that he kind of yeah. peppered in there uh, was was kind of interesting. And obviously, uh, doesn't seem like you know left necessarily on the greatest uh, of terms with them or for himself. No, it didn't anyway. seem didn't seem like it. No, he seemed a little like eh, that's the thing that I was doing, but I was basically already out, you know, mentally before I was even done. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think uh, we should stop talking so much about an interview that you haven't heard yet and let you get to it. So without further ado, <laughs> this is my interview with Sal from A Pale Horse Named Death, and we'll talk to you guys afterwards. pleasure this early evening of talking to Sal yep. Abriscato. He is the guitarist and vocalist for A Pale Horse Named Death, who just put out a record uh, earlier this year, actually uh, a few weeks ago now, uh, called When the World Becomes Undone. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm actually messing about here in, in the studio and uh, playing around with some uh, drum stuff. <laughs> I got the recording set up open. Yeah, I'm doing good. You know, uh, excited. It's been... Uh, I think a couple of weeks, just uh, almost, the album came out, and you know everything's going great. It seems like uh, everyone's loving it and receiving it well. Good reviews. Uh, couldn't be happier with the situation um, that's going on. It's it's uh, wonderful to see um, an appreciation for this kind of stuff and what we're doing as people. You know, so yeah, just good, pretty good, good start for 2019. You know, you guys announced that this record was going to come out in October, and I, I could be wrong. I mean, we're so inundated now with just a constant barrage of, hey, this band's putting out oh, a, yeah. a new record, and here's a song, here's a song, here's a song, here's a song. But I don't really feel like you guys did that with this record. I don't really recall there being an onslaught of uh, new songs before the record was coming out. Um, if, that, if my memory no. does, serve, does serve me correctly, was that kind of done – to kind of keep people actually interested in wanting to listen to it when it comes out, as opposed to being like, eh, I've already heard half of this record. Oh yeah. We didn't leak anything out. Uh, what, what the label, 
the label in November put out like the first single as far as streaming uh, for Spotify and that people can whatever, you know, buy it and check it out. I think that was like November 5th. And that was the first taste that everybody got. And of course it was like uh, an up, a mid-tempo song. It was Love the Ones You Hate. And I get, you know, I think I agreed with the label. It was, you know, because sometimes smacking people in the face with the outright doom, slow stuff out of the gate, sometimes you'll lose people because they don't have enough attention span <laughs> to last that long. Um, and then and then in December, they put out Vultures. And then now uh, the record came out, the week before the record came out, they put out the title track, When the World Becomes Undone. So... Um, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, it was kind of like the band was deactivated and quiet for a while. And I, I, I think sometimes that, you know, like what it works in your favor, if there's people that like the band and then they become more curious about what's going on when you're going to come out with another record. And sometimes going away is good, but it can also hurt you. But I think, I think I don't want to be that band. It's like, constantly smacking people in the face with bullshit every day. I want to give good substance when there's good substance to give. And if it's a show or a record, you know, uh, but it's crazy the way it is now, actually, John, with the, with the social media and the internet and how fast information is out there. And I get guys like yourself, like you said, you get hit with a new record probably every freaking six hours and you got to freaking listen and you got to listen to it. And there's so many bands. There's millions of bands compared. Like when I started, there was a lot of bands. But now, <laughs> holy crap. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. There could be a billion bands out there for all we know. It's just, like you said, inundated. The whole business, not enough money coming in, and it's inundated with everyone with their home studios and, 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 and also knowing how to do blast beats and, and, and putting out all kinds of shit, you know. It's right. crazy. It's crazy what it's become. It's too disposable, and it's too, uh, again, people, like a song will survive a few weeks, and then it's done, on to the next, you know, it's it's so uh, just disposable, yeah, just just toss it aside, on to the next, you know, there's no life to anything anymore, at least in the resurgence in vinyl, but the whole holding the physical copy in your hands, reading the lyrics, looking at all the artwork, I mean, this is bullshit with the phone, you know, just a simple little, you know, JPEG for an album cover. I mean, I'm guilty of it, too. I have songs on an iPod that I play through a Bluetooth thing in my garage when I'm doing stuff in the garage. And it's an easy way to catalog music. But this was all music that I cataloged from the boxes of CDs I have behind me here. You know, I have all the physical copies. Um, It's, yeah, so... um, doing all right (laughs) (laughs) you know something you know in in mentioning you know obviously your your ties to typo and even we'll go with life of agony as well you know how because there was a bit of a gap there was obviously the last my timeline might be wrong life of agony put out the last record that you guys that you were on other than the most recent one but like in 2004 or 5 i think and broken valley yeah yeah and you didn't put out the first appeal horse named death until 2010 or 11 so at that point you know what were you doing in that gap of time between when life of agony was kind of done and, and wanting to start up a new band given the fact well that life were... of agony life of agony kept working up until 2011 actually okay um, that's true and yeah then, and, and then, you know, so even though the record that record was uh 
that record came out on Epic, totally was a fiasco, and then that was 2005. So the band kind of like all of a sudden like turned into this part-time thing uh, where it was part-time. Right. Uh, two weeks a year, you know, and the band was doing that up until 2011. Then uh, there was a transformation, as we know, and that person said they didn't want to be in, do it anymore, and they had, to, they had to go change and, you know, go into the cocoon and become somebody else. So the band, like, kind of, like, stopped, right? And already I had the idea. In 2009, the concept, the name came to me. So the band name the band idea and the songwriting and everything began is already 10 years old. And, um, I was already brewing, uh, when I saw the writing on the wall, I said, well, you know what? I need to do my own thing. I've done a lot of records. I've done a lot of records with collaborative bands, whatever, or other bands, but I need to do what I hear man, do what I like. I'm a very dark kind of depressing, negative person to begin with, you know, but I also have dark, dark humor. And, uh, so that's what keeps things balanced. Uh, everything is dark humor. A lot of times the sarcasm and all of that stuff, pretty real for like all of us that have those roots that come from that same time and place. Uh, so 2009, I, I already started beginning to write and I had the name of Pale Horse Name Death there for like, like January. I was watching something on History Channel about, um, I was talking about revelations and stuff and biblical stuff. And I just did a play on words and twisted it. Cause we all know that death himself rode the pale horse, mm-hmm. but I twisted it around and went a pale horse and named death. So it just was a play on words that kind of stuck. And I knew I, I was onto something and this whole gloominess I wanted to do and all the stuff I learned over the years from being exposed to people since I was a kid. Um, you know, so that, record actually was done we had like a demo version of it in 2007 but then stv picked it up and in 2011 right when loa said that you know we weren't going to do any more shows um i came back to europe and did a couple of weeks with a pale horse named death when we had like the first first lineup and um and it started then so but you know we do other things too i'm also you know you know did side gigs i did you know, I have my house, I have, I moved, and, you know, it's just all kinds of stuff in life that happens, you know, in those quiet moments. But, uh, yeah, so that all started then. So then, all of a sudden, in 2014, LA wanted to get back together. At the same time, I was kind of having a rough time. Um, in 2013, my second daughter was born, and she, you know, for me and my wife, she was born disabled and blind. And so we instantly were thrown into a heavy um, situation of being super proactive. And my wife was like superwoman um, right away. Just my daughter had corneal transplants already right. two times on both eyes. And, wow. and, and, and oh yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of heavy things for a family. So that changed things for me also. Where I didn't want to tour for extensive periods of time at once. I wanted to break things up. So that was fine and dandy when LOA got back together. And at the same time, I wanted to take a break with APHND. And I already had the sketches of the third album and the concept that had already been done in 2014. But, you know, there was just issues with people and stuff and just life. And, and at, the, at that moment, it was like a cash grab thing with LOA. 
Um, but I knew I had to come back to it eventually and I needed to get back to this, which over the year, they turned into like one year to two years and three years. <laughs> and next thing you know, uh, because I got involved doing LOA's record, that sucked two years of my life out. There was no way I'd have any kind of time, especially having kids and being a family man. And I live in the country, which is always a lot of groundskeeping and work to do left and right. It's like a farm, you know? Right. So, um, Basically, um, I was busy with a lot, but then finally, you know, once I was done with that and there was some differences going on, I decided I wanted to do a third record. And, you know, a couple of guys had come see me, you know, at some shows and they were asking me and I was getting emails and letters. And, and uh, one thing led to another and uh, I decided I wanted to do the third record. I had all this stuff sketched out and I knew it had the potential of... Uh, maybe being a really good time to put it out, you know, there's nothing's gotten better <laughs> in the world. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting in hearing you kind of talk about a pale horse named death in conjunction against life of agony and just your own life, personal going ons. It almost seems like the band is almost a reactionary byproduct of what you're going through. Like, you know, the the frustrations I guess you had at the end of the Life of Agony around 2011-ish when you guys were kind of on hiatus. Or whatever. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. so, you know, when Lay My Soul to Waste came out, that almost seems like, again, it's kind of reactionary to maybe what you went through with your daughter and, you know, just, just everything as a whole. And I think that's kind of interesting because when I, listen, when I was listening to the whole discography over the last, you know, week or so leading up to this, there was this constant not nagging, but just this thing as I kind of was like, you know, looking, listening to the lyrics and just kind of taking it all in. It felt like this was, it almost felt like there, this was kind of a reaction to something. I just didn't know to what, um, because I mean, with the, the, the name and the imagery you put on your album covers, even, you know, looking at a JPEG or whatever, there's still something to be kind of said about the power of a, an image to go along with an album because it is the visual representation, hopefully of what's contained within and with the yeah. album titles themselves, it just, like I said, it just kind of seemed like there was obviously a little bit something more under the surface of this being, there's something more that was kind of the cause of these songs that they actually kind of needed to come out of you. Not just like, yeah, it's time to write another record. These songs sound cool. Like, all right, let's go. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You actually nailed it on the head. Um the third record especially is uh, even more personal. But when you say, like when you said that how you, you just didn't know exactly what it was about was something that I do intentionally. I try not to be too specific because I still want the listener to kind of adapt it to their situation in their life, you know, or relate to it and be like, wow, I feel like that at times too. And I try not to be always like too specific and leave it open to interpretation, you know, um, but kind of guide you in that feeling. Um, but the record, yeah, it represents, um, you know, just uh, there was a lot of things that happened personally in, in the last five years from the day that my daughter was born. And then a lot of family problems we had with, uh, with, with, with outside of, outside of the home. with like, you know, sisters and brothers and things like that. And, family feud stuff like really stupid stuff and but it consumes you and it and it, was, and it got real heavy with certain things and then and then battling with 
hoping that you you, know, you can see maybe your daughter one day just do something simple like walk in the grass, you know. Um, it, it just, uh, you know, and then uh, and then the, the issue of people, you know, kind of like playing you or using you or, or 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 acting like you had nothing to do with anything, and they just, you know, just. A betrayal kind of type of behavior, fair weather friend behavior stuff. There's stuff like that in there, and there's stuff about just personal battles of always thinking about um, suicide, you know, and things like that. Always battling. I'm a I'm a diagnosed manic depressant, so that in itself is an issue. And to give you another situation, like not only like in 2017, when things unraveled between me and life of agony, my daughter had like about 25 procedures and I left on tour two times while my wife was in the hospital uh, with my daughter and pregnant with my third daughter that was born that November, um, which was something that wife of agony didn't find so appetizing that I was having another kid, I think. Um, and it meant I needed a couple of months off when that all went down anyway. And it was, um, so I also was diagnosed with monoclonal gammopathy that year, along with being diagnosed manic depressant, which I made it clear to everyone. And uh, then I was on some medication over that summer that was making me feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable, so I stopped taking it. Uh, and monoclonal, what I got diagnosed with was uh, something that never goes away, and it's a precursor. If it gets aggressive, it turns into myeloma. To give you an example, last Thursday I had a, a bone marrow biopsy oh, okay. because that was something that, that was something I was putting off for a bunch of years now. And at this point, my numbers—I get screened every three months. My numbers were going up a little bit, so my specialist was like, "Can we put this to rest already and do a bone marrow biopsy?" Because if anything, because the bone marrow biopsy is the only true test that will tell you exactly what's going on with cancer and things like that if you have it and what you have, because blood tests can only give you like 95%. So it could come back negative, but there could still be something in there, you know, going on. So I was forced to do, not forced, I just had to face up to it, face the music and do this bone marrow biopsy to find out if I have something brewing. And, um, you know, life has been a couple of kicking the, you know, taking the balls for the last bunch of years. Yeah, sounds like it. And I was dealing with people that were going through midlife crisis and wanted to be 18 again and, uh, and uh, didn't have time with my problems, you know, and didn't understand why I was uh, maybe depressed or upset because what was going on between my, my kid and me, you know, it was just like a lot of worries. So that's kind of like in a nutshell, like, you know, that's the type of person I am. I wear my heart on my sleeve, so I'll tell people like it is, how it is, when it is, and what it is. And some folks can handle it, some can't. But that's that's the fuel. That's all that shit is the fuel. You know, people not understanding me or understanding the situation, but yet I got to be compassionate and be empathetic to others. It's, it's like a, you know, one-way street. But nonetheless, it still was the fuel for the lyrics and continues to be the fuel because, um, you know, I just found out, we just found out, my daughter has another surgery coming up in June. Mm. So this is something I got to tangle with all the time, scheduling-wise, with tours and things like that, too. So, you know, there you go. In a nutshell, that's the answer to what you were feeling from those lyrics. 
it's uh it's very serendipitous the timing of, of you telling me the story of, you know about the things that you've gone through with your your child i uh I myself grew up uh, with a cleft lip and palate, and while not nearly as severe as what your daughter's going through, uh, we, my wife and I were watching something, and there was a, it was like a procedural show or something like that, you know, just some bullshit TV, and uh, there was a scene in the show, though, where the daughter and the mother, the mother basically gave up part of her liver for her daughter, um, and she went to squeeze her hand because her mother wasn't awake from the surgery. There are complications. And uh-huh. it brought me back immediately. And I started crying. And I'm probably getting a little bit emotional now thinking about it. But my wife was like, sure. you'll, you'll cry. Oh, at, she yeah. goes, you'll, you'll cry at everything. And I go, this this was my childhood kind of. I remember growing up having to go have a lot of oral and facial surgeries. And my parents, you know, one of my parents having to spend the night in the in the hospital with me. And the thing, and I don't know if I've ever actually told my wife this specifically as to the whole background of this thing that, you know, my parents and I and now my wife and I do. But, you know, when I squeeze our hand, even, you know, at the middle of the night, my parents were always like, if you need me, if you're afraid or whatever, squeeze my hand to know that I'm there and, you know, that, you know, I love you. And mm-hmm. so when I saw that, I was I was just thinking about that. And, it, and it's one of those things that I think now as a 30-something-year-old person, you know, I've had this uh, very – conflicted thing recently about uh my childhood and how being compared to other people going to doctors professionals and how they kind of fucked with me mentally in a thing of going like well here you are and here's a chart of what is quote unquote normal you're not normal you're never gonna do this you're never gonna do this you're not gonna do these things and thinking back about how it just it fucked with me. <laughs> yeah. And, well, you're sc- scarred for life. Yeah. And it, and it's one of those things where, you know, and then, obvi- you know, just a lot of the other baggage that comes along with, with having, being born with a, a birth defect of sorts, uh, whether you want to deem it as such or not. Some people say now that it's it's common enough that it's easily fixable and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, still, mm-hmm. it's it's still one of those things that I think the – you know, just going through something like that. And I couldn't imagine, you know, I know it's something I've had to bear the the brunt of from my father telling me that my grandfather, who was born with this condition as well, you know, telling my dad mm. the firstborn out of four children, like if my if I would have known that this would have been passed down generations to my, my first grandson, I would have never had kids. And it's mm-hmm. like there's there's shit like that when when you kinda hear things about what people go through and it's yes, it's it's a it may not be happening to you, but there's the ramifications of the things that are, are have been said, like that get said to you as the parents, or the the responsibilities and the burdens that fall on you as a parent. That I don't think a lot of people really can understand. And I myself, not having not having kids, I can't understand it from your perspective that that way. But being a child right. of these things and going through this shit, yeah, I understand you went it, through it yourself. Yes. And so yeah. from that perspective, you know, it, you know, I, I, I want to say, I guess, thank you for, for telling me and, and whoever is going to listen to this, you know, those stories. I, you know, I know they're very personal and, and I've also not told anyone any of the things I just told you. So, I mean, you know, I feel like this is, you know, kind of one of the things I love about a podcast at times is just the sometimes the breaking down of of uh-huh. bullshit barriers and just being real and honest and open about things. And yeah, there's not enough of it. Through. 
And I Not think enough of it. there's something to be said about what you're doing. Actually, I would honestly say throughout your whole fucking career. I mean, Life of Agony was a little bit before my time, uh, honestly, and was something retroactively. You know, I, I've never been one of those people that, you know, like I've never seen Goonies. But a lot of people will be like, oh, my God, you need to see it. And I go, to what, recapture the youth of when I didn't see it? Like there's there's kind of a time and a place for certain things, and sometimes you're just not able to fully appreciate something for when it actually came out in the in the present. Um, that being said, you know your time spent in Type O, like Bloody Kisses. I just went back and listened to the other day, and was like, Jesus Christ, yeah. this record fucking still stands up. And if you were to oh, put it out it, now, it, like I still think it would oh. sell a shitload of records. Yeah, I think so. I think that that uh, that's probably one of my that's my biggest you know proudest one of my proudest moments was to be part of that record. Um, so um, and even the ones before, you know, the first record, Soul Deep and Heart, was a it was a masterpiece. Oh, yeah. It's all right as far as having that thrash core essence to it. The uh, it was kind of a continuation a little bit. A lot of that bunch of that material was material that was supposed to be the third carnival record. Right, yeah. And uh, so that aggressive stuff was on that record from that. And, it, and, it, and then it's all right, it's great record too. But yeah, you know what? I'm, I, I can't believe it's so long ago, but I'm very <laughs> proud. I'm very proud to have been part of the whole thing and be part of a scene that... Um, you know, it was really cool, and, and, and a lot of people like had like world-renowned respect for the Brooklyn sound, that whole thing, that nonsense they were talking about. But it was really a neighborhood thing, right. and to be part of like you know, uh, you know, to be part of all that back then was those records. Yeah, they, I have those records are, you know, I have them on my wall. You know, that those are the ones I proudly display. So uh, I don't think. I think we lucked. It was like our Pink Floyd, the wall. You yeah. know, one of those moments in career in your career that you didn't realize what you were actually what was actually going down, but you kind of made history. And like even after we're gone, you know, it's going to be listened to and checked out by people for the legacy will live on. The mark will be there. You know, and it's cool. I think, you know, I know River Runs Red is that record for a lot of people as well, like Bloody Kisses is for a, a slightly different scene or demographic. But, I mean, kind of having your hand in, in two very seminal records, do you, have you found that the fans of both bands have actually followed you into A Pale Horse Named Death? Um, more, um, I think the type of negative fans uh, follow um, like that, it's again, it's a different kind of uh, group of people, um, especially in recent years. Um, I think I had a little bit like, uh, I mean, even I, there was some back in the day, but even now, it's all the type O fans that are raving about what we're doing. It's, it's the, it's a very close type of vibe and like essence yes. that gives them a little bit of a memory or reminds them of like. <clears throat> oh, you know, that sounds like some type of we do kind of thing musically or whatever. So I've always had a lot of support from type O fans, you know, hands down. You know, I've, I've talked about this a couple of times on, on some of the recent episodes that are going to be probably have already come out by the time this one does. But that being said, so I've been trying to apply this to other things and, and kind of thinking about how I would feel if, if this were to happen with other bands. 
but you know they're doing this this weird Static X reunion tour thing, or I, I don't even know if you can fucking call it a reunion. Um, they're doing a tour uh, with basically the three fourths of the band that's not Wayne, and they're going out and performing their first record in its entirety for its twentieth anniversary coming up in the next I think couple of weeks. Um, uh huh. You know it it's definitely sparked as a music fan a lot of debate between a lot of people in the industry, a lot of fans, a lot of friends that I've talked to um, and just reading comments. And, you know, it made me kind of think because, you know, there are just certain bands and certain iconic front men that are, that kind of made the band. And, you know, I was like, you know, if this were to happen, like if all the rest of the people that made up typo negative were to go out and be like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to do bloody kisses. We're going to do it front to back without Peter. Like, it's like, I feel like, uh-huh. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that that's kind of my thing is like, I feel like for the most part, like, I mean, you were in the band and you, even you're like, Meh. and it's like, you know, I talked to somebody else and they're like, it's obviously a cash grab. And it's also a big fuck you to, to Wayne because obviously there was. That's some, all it is. That's yeah. all it is. And so to, to me, it's just one of those things like, and you know, you, I believe you were on the, the river runs red anniversary tours, obviously that you were talking about earlier. Um, so, I mean, you've you've been a part of one of these anniversary runs that, you know, for lack of a better yeah. term, that's kind of what really those are is a nostalgic kind of cash grab of sorts uh, to get people out that haven't been out to shows probably in 10, 15 years. But, you know, that aside, it's just I, has has anyone ever approached any of you guys to be like, hey, you guys should do a one off like typo negative thing or whatever. Has that ever been bro- broached to you guys? Because I can't think of. Anybody doing what Static X is really about to embark on outside of straight up doing like ACDC where you get a whole new dude and, and then you keep going forward with somebody else, but not not redoing a, or celebrating a record and touring in support of it when the person has already passed on. I've, I've never seen that. Yeah, I don't think it's cool. Like, I think it's desperate. It looks desperate. It seems... Like, okay, people need money. Here we go. Let's come up with ideas. How can we make this work? I, I think, you know, if they were to carry on with a new singer as a new band, probably there was more, would there be more dignity in that? But uh, I'm not I'm not for that kind of thing. I think this whole deal hologram thing is stupid also. <laughs> um, I think I think people have to let go and let legends be legends. Don't, don't try to... Uh, bring them back from the dead one way or another. You know, I, I think, I think typo, first of all, Peter was so prolific and wrote everything and pretty much. And, and he was such a unique figure and such a unique voice and unique attitude and just unique period. Um, it's like, you know, it's like, uh, look, Led Zeppelin couldn't really, couldn't continue after John Bonham, you know, passed away. These days bands will continue with doesn't matter if the drummer dies or not, they continue. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, that was the kind of attitude Led Zeppelin had. I was like, we can't without our bro, without he was part of the, of the, of the recipe, you know? Now you're talking about someone like Peter, who was like the guy that wrote it all, the, the, the voice, the, the, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think it would be stupid. And I, I not, not stupid, just I don't think it's a good idea. You know, and I don't think it would be respectful or fair to the whole entity of what was laid down on those records and what the band was, how great it was live when he was alive. But, you know, I think uh, now, um, 
some bands are getting desperate. Some people are getting desperate as they get older and they owe money or whatever it is. They need money and lots of money. And what kind of idea can we come up with? You know, why don't you just go write, write a new record and, you know, be a new band, you know? And that's kind of like what's gone on, you know, like, you know, like you have Kenny who has uh, done his bands and, you know, you, you know, you have Johnny who's involved in a lot of bands and, and, and I, I'm doing my thing and Josh did a career change and everyone's doing their own thing and that's the way it should be left. You know what I mean? So if anyone really cares, you know, actually helping out the members and their other projects is a way of just trying to continue some type of handle like, you know, pass, you know, torch kind of thing, keep it going. Uh, that's that's the best thing you can do because I think there's more dignity in starting a new project and, and creating new music and moving forward at the same time maybe retaining those roots and retaining influences and sounds and things like that or what you really like to do because we all really like that kind of stuff at the end of the day. So I think there's more dignity in all that and writing some good new music. So that's what the, that's what like, Static X should have done. They should have just made a new record with a new guy. Or maybe do one or two songs live as a tribute type of thing. Right. But I don't know about the whole record. And they build a tour around that idea. I don't know. I think it could be hit or miss. Maybe it'll do really good. Maybe it'll be a disaster. You know, kind of shifting gears a little bit, though. You know, I know that uh, something that a pale horse named Death has been doing that I think is really great, and we kind of have hit on it a couple of times, is the vinyl. And something that was kind of interesting, interesting to me is this past Record Store Day, actually, there was the reissue of Bloody Kisses on vinyl. How involved were you with the the reissue of, of everything that went into that? Uh, I didn't have no involvement in the reissue at all. All I got was a copy in the mail. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, yeah, okay. oh, with the bloody kisses, with the bloody kisses you're talking about. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was Johnny. That was Johnny and one of the dudes from Roadrunner Records, um, and and Kenny and and I think they had a hand. You know, they had it, but I didn't know anything about it. I I got a copy in the mail and I was like, okay, cool. You know, I saw they did a release thing in the city. Um, was not invited to that, so I don't know what that what's up with all that. But I don't let that stuff get in between discussions or anything. You know, like I don't let that get in the way between like APH and D, me and Johnny and things like that. So, uh, but I, I didn't have much to do with it. No, I think it's cool though. I think it's really cool, um, and I, I dig it. You know, it has like three vinyls and stuff. I I I think it's um. Definitely a nice little package for the fans. Um, they made like a limited run, like only five thousand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't really have a hand in that, and that's okay with me too. Because I mean, you know, it's uh, it's one of those little like novelty things, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because your uh, your most recent record, I mean. I was pretty impressed by the actual package of this. I mean, you had a limited edition box set out of 500 or 550 copies or something like Five, that. 550, yeah. That I had in hand. Me and Sam Sheeran. And, and you know, it was awesome that the label, like, first of all, the label never did that. Like, in the past, the first two records came out on double gatefold vinyl. Mm-hmm. But um, when they said they were doing this special bundle and it had, like, all this cool stuff in it, 
I was like, wow, this is cool. And, and, and I made sure, like, they sent us one each. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get one of those, like, limited box sets? So they sent us one each, but then they sent us a bunch of regular vinyls and digipacks and stuff. Uh, but I did get my hands on a box set, and it, it comes with this stuff full of nuts, you know? Um, that, I think, is really cool. And I think that's cool incentive for people that especially are getting into the band for the first time because all of a sudden you open it up and you get this sticker, you got a patch, you got a hat, and then you have the record and the CD. There's a digipack that comes in the box, too. So um, pretty neat. And then they had some other version that was like the vinyl and the T-shirt. But the limited run was great. Those records were like the marbleized street, green and black also. And uh, we haven't, I haven't, we haven't cut the, we're funny about cutting the cellophane on the vinyls and stuff. So we try to preserve them. And uh, my wife's a vinyl collector. She's like, no, don't cut it. Don't cut it. Don't cut it. Leave them wrapped up. Nice. I'm like, okay, cool. So, you know, so we haven't really looked at it, but I think um, Eric opened his and he told me it looked incredible, um, the vinyl. So, yeah. You know, there's been obviously a carrying carrying theme between the record albums, uh, the record covers, I should say, with the horse and and there being an an image. Um, Is that something that you see just always being omnipresent on your album covers? Uh, it kind of worked out that way, but yeah, you know, it's kind of like maybe, you know, I wanted to do, we like the whole idea of like the one artist because Sam gets it and he gets the music and he gets us and there'll be always a horse somewhere, somehow, um, just like the horse is on the cover of Lay My Soul to Waste, but it's, but it's, a, it's in the clouds and in the mist. Yep. And, um, I think it's cool. Nobody really does this whole conceptual. It was like how when I was a kid following Iron Maiden records, Derek Riggs was the artist that did Eddie on every Iron Maiden record. And every time there was a new record coming out, you know, everybody would be pumped about what it was going to look like. And like, you know, a lot of part of the big reason was not only did they rock, you know, the metal, the metal was great, you know, but the record, the artwork was the other reason to be into Maiden. And, uh, I don't think a lot of fans do that. Everyone's trying to be, uh, you know, avant-garde or whatever, but it seems to work with this band and we have that kind of artist that is into concept and continues things and carries things over from one record to the next. So um, I think it's cool, you know, and in the next, next record, we'll have something in that kind of apocalyptic vibe again, you know, with the same type of art. Why not? Yeah. You know, well- where uh, and wrapping up, where can people find you and or the band online? And what does 2019 have in store for the band? Um, you can find us, uh, of course, www.apalehorsenames.com. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on you know Twitter at APHND, Instagram at APHND. We go to Europe in March, uh, March 20th. We go to Europe for like almost three weeks. That's like we break the ice. We come home and then. There's something in the works for us to do Canada, or like five shows in Canada, and do like a Northeast tour in May, first two weeks in May. And then we have our, our um, working on a couple of festival weeks in August in Europe. And we're just going to try to do like these two-week chunks in balance with life and everything else. And we're, we're definitely planning to be more active than we've been for the last five years. That's for sure. Awesome. Well, again, Sal, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today and and being so open and honest about everything. And uh, looking forward to hopefully catching a show sometime this year with you guys. 
Yeah, man. And thank you for being honest and nice talking to you and good luck with everything. And, and thanks again for supporting the band and doing this with us. Yeah, not a problem. Have a great day. All right, man. You too. Bye-bye. So that was my conversation with Sal of A Pale Horse Named Death. Uh, I got to say, I, I I definitely feel like I left a, a big part of me in that interview. Uh, really, both of us, I think, actually really opened up to each other, which is really weird. Uh, total strangers, you know, completely... Uh, being vulnerable and honest with each other about life experiences and uh, definitely walked away from that one kind of being like, wow, that was that was something that's going to stay with me for a while. And it kind of was well, really, yeah. I was really nervous actually about leaving it in, but I decided when I edited the episode, uh, I, I left everything in there. Yeah, I was, there's some shit I didn't know in there. Uh, <laughs> you know, just you talking about, you know, people saying, well, you're never going to be, you know, normal. This is you. This is what normal is. And that, Oh my God, dude, that, you know, I was like, Oh, John, <laughs> but at the same <laughs> yeah. time, you know, I, you know, I, we, I think we've all experienced something like that, uh, to, to a certain extent, um, not, not primarily your situation, but, but in other things, you know, like I was always told as a child that like, I, I remember I joined choir whenever I was younger and the choir teacher was like, you, you suck <laughs> like straight up. She was like, you're never going to be able to sing in harmony with anyone else. You're always going to be, you know, you're going to always be subpar. You might get okay, but you're always going to be subpar. And to a certain extent, that's true. That's something I have to live with, you know. And you, like I've sang, I've sang for bands, and uh, I've I've done clean singing, I've done screaming, and it just I kind of just ended up taking that negative and trying to turn it into a positive but I was like okay I'm never going to be able to sing along with the group so I'm going to fucking lead the group <laughs> you know and so nobody has to harmonize with me and because I knew that I didn't ever I didn't have a strong singing base you know that's whenever I got into the got into the extreme vocal and I just happened to be lucky enough to live in a decade where that was what people wanted to hear <laughs> right so yeah, you know, but it, but that that whole feeling of just like, yeah, no matter how good you do, there's always going to be a fucking foot in your face. Well, I think the thing that was like just you know looking back on it that was more upsetting is it's just like you have a, a professional like a doctor telling you like here's a fucking chart and here's how we grade everybody and you're never like you're not normal you're never going to be normal and these are the things you're not going to do so just go ahead and suck it up and get used to it and you're just like and it's like you know. Like, a lot of my friends, like, honestly, it's really weird that, you know, it wasn't until I moved out here to Grand Rapids on my own uh, that I kind of found myself, I guess, which I guess is what you do in your early to mid-20s anyway, but it was kind of weird because, like, a lot of people were like, oh, I've never seen you be so confident or whatever, and I think a lot of it just, it took time because I, I mean, how do you learn confidence when you're always like, well, you're not as tall, like, you don't look like everybody else, you're not as tall as everybody else, you don't have, you didn't, I didn't grow up here in Michigan, so I have different uh, accents at times or I'm into different things or, you know, just all that shit. It's like, it's just a, a constant mental struggle that you deal with. And looking back on it now in the climate we're in now where you almost can't say anything to anyone, which is not what I want either. I kind of am of two minds where I guess the honesty that I was told from a medical standpoint, quote unquote, uh, you know, it allowed me to embrace all the, the, things I wanted to do and, and just never taking no for an answer and push me. However, it also has kind of made me, I guess, being the recluse at times makes me understand things from a completely different perspective where I'm not going to be so quick to say something because I, I know, you know, someone might be going through their own shit too. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's funny, though, to think back of the fact that, like, if your doctor had told you that now, if a doctor had told you that now in 2019 as a kid, your parents could have probably sued him. Yeah, probably. <laughs> for honestly. saying that, you know, for, or for, for wording it that way. Yeah, I, I don't know. And then, you know, it's kind of like, you know, putting it back onto Sal, you know, I couldn't imagine, you know, so so often in interviews we do with band people and I think just in things that we talk about as a whole – you know, we talk about these extraordinary situations that a lot of these people are afforded because of their ability to play music, to strike a, a chord with people that their music does something to, to where they're able to tour and, and go meet all these people and travel the world. But we don't really look at the adverse effects on it in their home life where it's like, you know, Sal has a child, his wife's pregnant, he has a child that's going through over 20 surgeries before, you know, or procedures before they're even five years old. And... Yeah. You know, a lot of that resonated with me with, you know, a lot of the stories my parents told me about all the oral surgeries and shit I had to have. And it's just one of those things where it's like I could I know now from my parents telling me those stories, like how it how it affected them and their relationship, you know, being young 20 somethings and being newly married. Like I, it's tough. I can't imagine you're on the road, you know, maybe even in another country and your wife is having to go be the lone parent in this situation, this, this scary thing yeah. that your child's going through and then having your bandmate be like, Oh, why are you so down? Like, isn't life great? And it's like, no dude, like shit sucks. <laughs> Life's great sometimes. Yeah. But most of the time it's us trying to get back to that point. Right. So I, I really resonated with that and I thought that was really uh, interesting and, and something I, I'm really thankful that Sal, you know, told. I'd, I've listened to a couple other interviews that he's done, and, and he's kind of touched on some of those things a little bit, but yeah. not so much going full on into it. And I think, you know, that's maybe one of the intangibles of the experiences I went through that I was able to kind of bond with him over that. And it was, it was, like I said, it really left a, I think for like the rest of that week, I, I kind of was like just kind of thinking about that interview and, and just kind of thinking about a lot of it. And it felt really raw and vulnerable and something that we, when it happens on this show, I think it's really awesome. But for me, I feel like, you know, I opened myself up and I'm really nervous to, to get a lot of, you know, I just, I don't want someone to be like, oh, this fucking asshole spent like five minutes talking about himself. And it's like, dude, <laughs> you, you kind of missed the point of why I, I told they, that story. They can get over it, man. I mean, you can either hear a real conversation between people or you can listen to robotic fucking, how'd you get your band name? Oh how does this band compare to your other band bullshit type of questions? Yeah. I mean, we had one of those. I thought it was kind of funny when he said that the whole Dio hologram was stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree with him on that, but, uh, you know, it's not as offensive as the other thing that we're not going to talk about now that we've already talked about on this episode. Let's, uh, let's talk about something that's not offensive and maybe something that'll lead some people into some explorative, uh, realms of their own. Uh, I'm currently drinking a local beer, a parent brewing company, 98 problems. Uh, it's an IPA. They have another one called uh, 99 problems. Obviously. I think we know where that comes from. Admittedly, I wasn't really a fan of the 99 problems. And, uh, my wife won this in a Christmas party thing last night. And so I have a whole six pack of it to drink. And, Christmas uh, party in uh, February. Oh, I'll tell you about more of that off mic. But uh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, basically, uh, Baron has some good beers. Their Blackberry IPA is really good. Um, but this might be something I throw in Dan's uh, box of stuff uh, here and uh, send it to him because I'm not really a fan of it. I'm waiting by the mailbox. But uh, that—that's what I'm drinking. Uh, 
kind of been taking it kind of slow. I've been fighting a cold and all that kind of stuff, so uh, not really been drinking. But 98 Problems, that's what I'm having. Uh, I guess, you know, a lot of people do like the 98 and 99 Problems IPAs. Uh, it's not for me personally, but uh, don't let that dissuade you from checking out Perrin uh, Brewing Company and some of their other great beers that they do have. And uh, Dan, I think, uh, is probably drinking a standby. Yeah, I'm drinking Space Dust. Oh, my God, <laughs> you, got, you got me. I think you're drinking it out of a bottle this time, not a can. Yeah, I had a can last night. Okay, I had several cans last night, and then, uh, yeah, I'm home for the weekend with no wife and kids, so I've had some standby beers. Um, I'm not going anywhere. It's just a lonely man drinking in his basement listening to vinyl in the dark. There might be crying. You know, you don't have to trouble yourself with that. (laughs) I think that's probably as good of any spot to uh, start wrapping this episode up. If you would like to keep up with Metal Nexus, you can find them at MetalNexus.net. Find them on Facebook at Metal Nexus, Instagram at Metal.Nexus, and Twitter at Metal underscore Nexus. Uh, if you would like to keep up with our show sponsor, The Bean Bastard, you can do such over at TheBeanBastard.com. They just put out a new blend, uh, the Mom Mom Blend. And uh, basically, I believe, if, if my memory serves me correctly, it is basically what was Shitter's Full but now, huh. like, the same beans, uh, but put into a mainstay, basically. So um, I have to get a bag of that here pretty soon and, and compare it to the Shitter's Bowl because that is my favorite coffee that he's put out so far. So, yeah, follow them on Facebook and Instagram, at the Bean Bastard. Dan, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, at DiscussMetalDan. You can find me on Facebook, under Daniel Terry. And you can send me an email if you want at show at gmail.com. That is also the email for my other podcast, Discography Discussion, which can be found at DiscussMetal.com. And if you would like to keep up with all things the podcast, you can find us on Facebook at Brutally Speaking, Twitter and Instagram are at BrewSpeakPod, and you can email us at BrutallySpeaking at gmail.com. We uh, started a contest over on the Facebook page, so if you go over to the Facebook page at Brutally Speaking on Facebook, uh, you'll see a video that I did where basically I got some stuff from the bean bastard and i've been trying to figure out ways to to do a contest to to make it fun so right now if you go over there we are doing a contest for the coffee scrub uh we are trying to get to 750 facebook likes so once we do that we're over 500 now so we need about 250 to go uh once we do that i'm going to randomly pick someone from the facebook page and uh we'll contact you to to do that But just know, so we're doing a contest. Please go out, like the page, tag some extra people. And that's another thing. Uh, If you tag a bunch of people and they end up liking the page and then they comment on the the contest video that they came because of you, and I'm going to buy you a bag of whatever coffee you want from the Bean Bastard myself to send to you. So sweeten sweeten the pot a little bit, pun intended. That sounds great. And uh, we are going to get out of here. So for the Brutally Speaking Podcast, I am John. And I'm Dan. And we will talk to you guys next time.